Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I'm an editor here at the magazine. This week I'm talking to science journalist Angela Saini, who will be talking about the disproportionate number of COVID-19 deaths in Britain's ethnic minority communities. Why is this happening and has it got anything to do with race? Um, Angela is an expert in all things um, intersectional between race and medicine and she is recently the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. In the current issue of Prospect, Angela goes behind the headlines to ask why Britain's ethnic minorities, again, have been disproportionately affected by the virus. Angela, thanks so much for joining us here on the Prospect interview. So, so from the start of the coronavirus, um, which emerged in China, it seems that there's, there was always a sort of odd racial inflection to how it was described. So, you know, it was described as a Chinese flu. Uh, Trump has been big on that, repeating that. Um, and it's almost as if people wanted to racialise the disease right from the very start. You know, there were stories of people avoiding Chinese restaurants. God, that seems like such a long time ago now. Um, uh, why do you think there was this somehow instinctive response on behalf of some people to, uh, to link the disease and, and race? Well, I think it says a lot about our societies that we go there first, you know, that something like this happens and rather than having a kind of humanitarian response to it, which is we're all in the same boat together, this is a terrible thing, how do we deal with it? The response of some people first is to point fingers and then to turn to these racialized stereotypes. Um, what surprised me um, during the pandemic or the worst days of the pandemic was just how many racial myths there were. They just came and went almost every week, They're rising and falling, these strange ideas about who could catch it, who couldn't catch it, where it came from, horrible acts of racism in the streets. Like you say, that there were, there were Chinese people living in Western countries who were facing abuse in the streets, uh, obviously when this had nothing to do with them. Um, and then there were racial myths around who could catch it. So, for example, in the beginning of the virus, uh, beginning of the pandemic, there was this idea that black people couldn't catch this disease. This disease, obviously, we're not so different genetically that some people can catch a virus and some people can't just because of the ethnic or racial group they belong to. And then within a, within a couple of months, that racial 
myth had completely overturned to become the opposite, which was somehow black and Asian people, non-white people are more susceptible to coronavirus than others. Um, so it's, it's been very strange. And I think it reveals a kind of latent racism within society that this is where we go first. Yeah, and we have seen that there have been disparities uh, in Britain and the United States as well in the number of ethnic minority people who have died from the the disease. And that led to quite a lot of theories about, you know, whether it's a genetic issue, people were talking about vitamin D deficiencies, susceptibilities in those terms. How do we work out, given the available evidence that we, we have or that we don't have, um, whether there's any truth to that? Um, I think it's very difficult to tell. I don't, I think people want there to be simple answers and there aren't. In fact, there are very few answers around the the virus more generally for example we still don't know why it is that older people seem to be so much more severely affected than very young people young people almost unaffected if you're under 14 the risk to you is negligible um so there are lots of question marks around how this pathogen works and operates um, but when it comes to racial disparities we forget so many things so we look at the top line figures and of course the, the news has been dominated by these top line figures it's all we've thought about and so whenever we see disparities anywhere they are multiplied right across the media and those figures become dominant in our thinking what we forget is that there have always been racial disparities in health so they were always going to play out in the event of a pandemic so we've seen quite pronounced differences um, gaps between black and hispanic people in the u.s and and white americans and um Black Americans die of almost everything at higher rates than white Americans, even infant mortality. There's a life expectancy gap of a few years between white and black Americans. So why in the event of a pandemic would we expect things to play out any differently? That, you know, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Um, so I don't know why there was quite the level of surprise and confusion that there was among the public and among scientists when the figures came back looking the way they did. Yeah, you say there's, you make an interesting point in, in, in a piece you did in The Lancet that, and this was astonishing to me, that the death rate of black women in the UK when they give birth is five times the rate of white women, which seems clearly to be related to, as you say, racism, basically, rather than and race as such. Yeah, although that hasn't stopped um, medical researchers from investigating the possibility that there is something different about black women's bodies that cause them to die at greater rates. It, w it actually fell on midwives, um, black midwives, to show that this isn't the case. So one of the, um, one of the last things I did before lockdown started was um, I gave a talk um, at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in London on exactly this issue there was a there was a day-long event for midwives doctors and medical professionals looking at the reasons why maternal mortality rates are so much higher among black women and also more pronounced in asian women um and what where we all landed there was c consensus in the room that this isn't these this is because of systemic issues it's because of structural issues around racism and inequality associated with race there are so many different factors here, certainly not biological. And yet the pandemic starts and then we start talking in these biological terms again. Um, so what worried me perhaps is not so much that the public jumped to these conclusions, but that scientists did. That really surprised me because we should know better by now. For 70 years, 
we have known that race is a social construct, that as a species we are more homogeneous than almost any other species on Earth. We're more homogeneous than uh, chimpanzees, than any other primate. So the level of genetic difference between us is not enough to account for the health disparities that we see between groups. We know that categorically. Research needs to be done into the social determinants of health. And yet something like this happens and the first thing people do is jump to genetics as an explanation. It's whenever you go to a hospital, you have to fill in a form which describes your sort of racial origin. And I remember when those forms first came about and I first had to fill them in, there was about five different categories. Now there must be like 30 reflecting the different racial groups. And I remember I always have to fill it in East African Indian, which always was amusing to me because I, when I was younger, I thought, well, what's the difference between that and just Indian? And then even Indian isn't really a racial category as, 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 as we know anyway, because there's so many different kinds of people within that country. Um, so, of course, it's actually meant to try and describe and pick up the kind of disparities in treatment that, for example, you were talking about with black women dying in childbirth. But then the doctor looks at that form and do you think that they then make assumptions perhaps about patterns that they see in their particular areas that then they then try and there's almost like sort of race science being smuggled in by the back door as it were yes and it's a product of the fact that it's always happened um if you think that the in western science at least the science of human difference for hundreds of years was predicated on this idea that racial groups are real and that there were profound differences between them in the 19th century um, American physicians were looking at the possibility that black people didn't feel pain as much as white people, that their skin was thicker, that their bones were denser. Um, so this is the legacy that we're living with now. It's still there. There have been studies done on American medical students showing that some of them still carry these stereotypes in their head, that black people still don't feel pain uh, in the same way that white patients do. And these are doctors. These are medical students about to become doctors. So. Um, those ideas are already there. They're also reflected in the literature. Um, but certainly, I think they're reified even further by, as you say, the fact that we tick these boxes routinely. We're expected to do that right throughout our lives, categorize ourselves. Doctors take one look at us and form certain assumptions about our health profiles on the basis of that. So although these are social groups, and there is value in collecting this social data because it does reveal, like I said, there are racial disparities in health, not because of biology, but for lots of other reasons. And you can't find them unless you collect this kind of data. Um, although, as you also point out, the categories become increasingly meaningless <laughs> over time, especially as you become more mixed as a population. You just end up with endless numbers of categories and people struggle to categorize themselves. Um, but it, it, there is value in collecting them. But at the same time, when you have those categories in the first place, um, it invites comparisons and it also does bleed into this long-standing myth, this pseudoscientific myth that there is some biological tangibility to these groups. And that is very prevalent amongst medical professionals. In fact, I've written before that medical science, in some ways, medical research is keeping race science alive. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, is that because of, do you think that we've got better at working out unraveling the human genome, genetic research has improved a lot over the last 20, 10 years even. Um, and for some doctors and scientists, it's about trying to trace diseases down generations and seeing patterns and groups and 
and that's actually been effective in in terms of identifying things but there's this whole racial thing as well which is maybe slightly slightly different well i think we have to remember that most of the things that kill us are not genetic in origin um they tend to be lifestyle diseases things like heart disease cardiovascular um things like that um so while they may have some genetic components you know some people may be more susceptible than others or uh, or because of their dna have a certain body type that makes them more susceptible than others by and large it's our lives our lifestyles our cultures the way we eat the way we uh, how active we are that impact whether we die of these things or not there's actually very few conditions that are directly genetic that are rooted in our dna and we will have them irrespective of how we live um but we live in this kind of genetic deterministic age i think um so and we have done for a very long time i wonder sometimes if this is a legacy of eugenics um eugenics of course is pseudoscientific ideology that believed that essentially that you are who you are from the moment that you're born because of your genes that you inherit most things from your parents and that will define how you turn out um and i think in the modern day we still have that i think the public and the scientific community still tend towards that looking to genes first for explanations um rather than all the other complex aspects of our biology so for example if we just take coronavirus we know that the most pronounced differences that we can see between groups are between the young and the old now your dna as far as i'm aware does not change dramatically between you being 5 years old and you being 75 years old so why genes or dna is thought to be a salient source of guidance here is beyond me we if it's age that's the big factor then there has to be something else at play here there has to be other biological factors at play here um the fact that we always look to genes as though they are somehow a blueprint for how our lives will turn out is is quite weird and also not in keeping with the facts the scientific facts that we have you mentioned the word blueprint there um Robert Plowman published a book with exactly that title Blueprint a couple of years ago and uh that book was arguing for the you know saying that we've actually ignored the genetic components of the way people turn out and people have been too sort of obsessed with sort of societal factors um what would you say in response to that Well I think it's possible to say that maybe 30 40 years ago there was a big focus on social environmental factors in upbringing that nurture was kind of dominant in the narratives then I don't think that's the case now I think scientists overwhelmingly understand that genes do play a role of course in who we are there's no doubt about that but that that's not the whole story and um there are a lot of I mean one thing we overlook there's a book by Kevin Mitchell that looked at this a while ago that showed that there are a lot of random developmental processes that go on that also affect how people turn out what which is one of the reasons why for example even within a family siblings can be so different from one another have very different life outcomes from one another so i don't think it's fair to say that people are ignoring genes i don't think that's true at all in fact it's quite the opposite i think that we we a little bit too deterministic about you know apples not falling far from the tree that this idea you know we accept so blithely this idea of dynasties in politics and the arts and the media we don't question why we have so many dimble bees doing the same job or you know whatever 
um, I think that speaks to our this long-standing belief that genes do matter. And I think sometimes, if anything, they are overstated. For example, Plowman, I did interview him for Superior, and his emphasis is no doubt on um, on genes, and he's been described by others in Nature, in the journal, as a hereditarian because of this. But as he, as he knows very well, if we take intelligence, for instance, even by the highest possible estimates, intelligence is around 50% heritable, which is significant, there's no doubt. But that's only if you live in... Um, a society and in a family in which all your needs are taken care of. So you're not suffering neglect, you are well fed, all these things, you are well educated, all these things. For the lowest socioeconomic groups, heritability of intelligence can fall to zero. So then genes become ever less important. And I think it's important to understand those distinctions that if we don't invest or care about nutrition, and early years care for people um, at the most vulnerable end of society, what we are doing is denying them even more than we imagine. Yeah, the whole intelligence genetics um, debate uh, is again quickly overlaid with a sort of racial tinge, isn't it? Even if people sometimes claim that um, that's not what they want to be talking about at all. Uh, for example, it's often claimed that, you know, IQ tests for Ashkenazi Jews, you know, they do very well on those tests at a very high level. And that somehow indicates that um, they're genetically superior to, uh, uh, to other kinds of people. Often in that debate, the next part of the sentence, and I've heard this from sort of people making this argument to me, is left out, which is like, well, what about the other groups that are not doing so well on those tests? And which groups are they? And I think we can imagine we know which groups they are. Uh, and um, it has been surprisingly persistent. You know, it seems to come back again and again, this idea, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting what we racialize and what we don't. So, for instance, the and I'm not talking about IQ tests here, I'm talking about GCSEs and A-levels. The worst performing group uh, in the UK at the moment is white working class boys. I very rarely hear that group racialized in the way that other groups have been. And we also have to remember, you know, when we talk, you know, at the moment, a lot of these kind of alt-right groups talk about Ashkenazi Jewish intelligence. A hundred years ago, at the start of the eugenics movement, when these IQ IQ tests were developed and we have to remember that intelligence testing emerged out of eugenics it was invented in order to be a tool for eugenesis when they went out into the east end of London one of the things they did was test the Jewish immigrant population there um, test results came back lower than the rest of the population and they immediately then surmised that Jewish children are less intelligent they're more mentally feeble than other groups so these ideas that we have, IQ tests are not infallible. They are culturally loaded. They're affected, like I said, by your upbringing and your exposure to ideas, to education, to nutrition, all these things. We have to remember just the ways in which they have been used historically and how careful we have to be. Robert Plowman himself told me, you cannot use IQ tests to measure differences between people in different social or racial groups because their circumstances are different. You're not comparing the same thing. 
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, um, when I was uh, younger, I I used to tutor kids in the 11 plus in certain areas where people go to grammar schools, they have to take this test. Um, and it's meant to be this neutral arbiter of people's intelligence. But of course, the very fact that people were paying me to teach them how to do the test, and then therefore if I was doing my job properly, they'd do better on the test. And the, the, the people who went to grammar schools and go, who go to grammar schools tend to be uh, more affluent, more middle class, shows that even a sort of neutral verbal reasoning test is going to be um, loaded. The dice are going to be loaded, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Of course that's the case. And we shouldn't expect anything else. Um, and we see that play out everywhere. I think we even see it play out in politics in the fact that so many of our political leaders have gone to the top public schools in the country. <laughs> And we are expected to believe that we live in a meritocracy, that everything is fair, that these are the best possible leaders that we can have, that they have some kind of natural talent. Um, well, does that mean that natural talent pools within these public these public schools? And, you know, the, this is why they're sending so many kids to Oxbridge and then they end up as leaders. I just think that's completely fallacious. Talent exists everywhere. We have to accept that. Um, and there's when that talent is nurtured wherever it is, then then we will have this fair meritocratic society, but we certainly don't have that now. The other thing that surprises me is often when you have these kind of programs for children in poorer areas. So I grew up in a kind of working class, lower middle class part of Southeast London, I went to a state school. And I noticed that when there were programs for kids, they would never be kind of... Um, for poorer kids, they would never be, you know, how can we get you into a top university? What can we do in order to get you to where you need to be? It's always, you know, a music program or a sports program or a drama program, kind of low-hanging fruit, the assumption that they weren't capable of the intellectual heights of other people. Um, that's why I was so impressed when I think, I think it was Stormzy set up that scholarship for young black kids to go to Cambridge, I think, um, because that recognizes again that, that you see 
such little diversity in these big institutions in public schools and in universities is because race overlaps heavily with socioeconomic status and there is very little ambition for people who belong to the lowest social groups. Yeah, and I think he said that um, you know, he felt that he would have wanted to go to Cambridge, but his circumstances didn't allow him to, and that he wanted to give more opportunities so, so, people, so people could. Yeah. Uh, going back to sort of you know, the history of uh, science um, and, and race, you know, we've seen recently with Black Lives Matter and the, the sort of emphasis on who we celebrate and statues to famous people, and looking into investigating who they actually were and what they actually did. Do you think there needs to be you know, a reckoning in the scientific community with looking at some of the you know, Victorian thinkers who shaped so much of the discussion around um, science and where they believe, even you know, great figures like Darwin, for instance, and in The Descent of Man, there is definitely a sort of racial aspect to his analysis there. Do you think the science is coming to grips with that? I think it's starting to. I mean, I've been giving a lot of talks at universities around the world for the last few weeks in the light of Black Lives Matter. And I do see a willingness um, on the part of the upper echelons of universities, which I've never seen before. I've always seen students quite active on this. I've never seen kind of senior staff so active um, on things like decolonization, on rethinking the way that science is presented, um, narratives. Um, I think it needs to be a little more than tokenistic. So while I do think there is value in, for example, what we're seeing at the moment, the renaming of lecture theatres, things like this, kind of assessing who do we want to celebrate and who do we want to remember, not necessarily because of the renaming itself, although that has significant uh, symbolic significance but the process of doing that in the process you learn so much people within these institutions finally start to understand the histories of these ideas and these people um, which often they're ignorant of so I do think there's great value in thinking about it even if nothing happens there's that process of thinking about it um, helps us understand just how much modern Western science was rooted in race, how much it contributed to racism for a very long time, for many hundreds of years, um, how much it aided slavery and colonialism. Um, we can't shy away from that. Um, and one thing I'm pushing for in particular, and I'm asking all universities to do, is consider incorporating history and the social sciences into curricula, science, medical, and engineering curricula. Um, so that students can understand the history of ideas and understand um, how knowledge is constructed. And you can be a great revolutionary thinker, but also be subject to the, um, you know, the circumstances of, of your time. Perhaps it's not surprising that uh, scientists in the 19th century in a world shaped by racial thinking were also infected by it as well. Yeah, and they were also products of that racial thinking. I mean, the reason when you look back through history, you see so many white men in scientific history is because only white men were allowed access to universities and the scientific academies until the middle of, sometimes in the middle of the 20th century. It took until 1945 for women to be admitted as full members of the Royal Society. So long after women got the vote. So there were 
um, long histories of exclusion here. So these people who you're naming, like Darwin and Fisher and Galton and Pearson and all these figures who we know had problematic ideas, why they themselves were, of course, rooted in a society that itself held those racial ideas. They were also products of a society, products of a system, a scientific establishment that said, you are allowed to do this because you are the most capable of doing this. So, of course, whether it was self-serving or not, they would, they would want to perpetuate those notions. And I'm not saying they were self-serving. I think in Darwin's case, for instance, he genuinely believed it. He genuinely believed that there might be racial differences between groups. But we have to remember that his thinking was, was definitively shaped by his society and also his position in that society. And just leading back to... Um... COVID and the current uh, pandemic, um, more probably the science that the, the government's been talking about how it's following the science and um, there's been science has been never been more on the agenda in terms of, you know, um, its importance. And um, how do you think the government has been doing? And also, how do you think science in, you know, in terms of scientific advisors have been doing? How, how would you rate them? It's difficult to say because we we don't really know what goes inside on inside those sage meetings. So um, I don't know what scientific evidence has been presented to the government, what they've chosen to work with, and what they haven't. Um, I'm always hesitant when I hear that phrase. You know, we're following the science. Um, over the last six months or so, the science has always been moving, as it has to, because we're learning as we go along in this pandemic. We didn't know everything at the beginning. We know a bit more now. We'll know a lot more in six months or a year's time. So this isn't a static situation here where we have all the scientific evidence and then we work from there. Um, it is up to the politicians to make a judgment call. And I think in retrospect, it's quite easy now to understand that perhaps we should have gone into lockdown earlier, that the virus was in the country sooner than we imagined. Um, and also this, the testing and tracing policies that other countries introduce, which help them avoid such high death rates, might have been useful here at that early stage as well. So it's easy to diagnose the failures afterwards, isn't it, though? So I, I don't want to be pointing fingers too much. Well, I'm sure in due course, many fingers will be pointed and um, we'll get to the bottom of it at some point. Um, but thanks so much, Angela. It's been a fascinating discussion. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's all from us. Thank you for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. It does help us. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye. Stay safe and see you next week. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.